So we acquired another hospital in Kentucky and it was kind of a fast, this hospital is kind of going bankrupt. We are, we're going to acquire them. Afterthought was security was an afterthought. IT was an afterthought. And the ink wasn't written on the paper for just a few months and the FBI showed up and said, Hey, all your data has been exfiltrated out. So we had a large breach where we had a keylogger that was on their network and exfiltrating out the data. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Jackie Mattingly, CISO at Owensboro Health. Jackie's childhood passion for technology led her into IT, but it was a malicious insider that kicked off her career in information security. After multiple acquisitions, a few FBI investigations, and a career of adaptability, Jackie joins us to cover the unique challenges she's tackled as a security leader in healthcare. As a CISO, building a successful security program requires understanding, not just of tech, but of your team. So how can a CISO implement security awareness without being punitive? Does knowing how to build and break a network help you defend it? And should a leader only make demands they could execute themselves? Jackie, thank you so much for being on our show. If you would, for the uninitiated, please introduce yourself. Who are you, Jackie? All right. So thanks for having me. I'm Jackie Mattingly, and I am the Chief Information Security Officer for Owensboro Health. We are a three-hospital health system in Kentucky, serving 18 counties and two states. Fantastic. How long have you been the CISO there? I was interim for a few years and became the full-time CISO in 2019. And how long were you interim? You said you, so 2019, you've been full-time or designated. How long were you interim? I was the interim privacy and security officer since 2017. Wow. So two years as interim. That's not fun. Why is it not fun? It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, like you were kind of in that role of the had the responsibility, but not yet the full title yet. Right. So you have uh, not that the job isn't rewarding, but that the it's sort of two years interim. And then since 19, I assume that there was some logistics there going on with that. Well, I can tell you that we were trying to actually split privacy officer and security officer was just too much. So we were trying to split those and it just took a while to hire a privacy officer. Ah, got it. So you had the privacy moniker responsibilities in the interim window, but then once 19 hit, then you were just CISO. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you, I never worked for a provider, but privacy officer there, that alone is is a substantial amount of responsibility. Let not forget about CISO for a moment. There's a, a lot that goes into that for sure. And hiring isn't always, you know, finding top candidates. So I could see how that could take a little while to split the responsibilities and get the right person in. So we met a while back and had a chat about just about your life and, and a lot of different things. When I asked you how you got your start, I was kind of surprised. You said you knew as a child, as a little girl, that you wanted to work in technology. 
take us back to that moment. What's your first memory? What do you, what's your recollection of that? And what was it? What kind of technology were you interested in? Sure. So this is going to date me, but back in elementary school, we started doing Oregon Trail came out. So the game Oregon Trail came out and I was, I'm kind of a gamer too. So I was really fascinated about that. And then I just love technology. Like computers were just starting to take off. You know, we were taking typing classes and I just loved that aspect. And so that's what I was like, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I used to really love Oregon Trail and I don't remember, it wasn't a 2E that I played on for, it was a precursor to that. But I can remember playing that and also really enjoying it, that sort of that platform and what that represented and how to, how to boot it up. And you got into programming pretty early as well, too, didn't you? Was that not part of what you got into in addition to playing the game? I did. So when I went out of high, got out of high school, went straight into college. And back then, really programming, really computer science programming was kind of the only option we had. So, yeah, I went straight into programming and got my degree in programming. Well, so. You were trying to get into technology, and I remember you told me that you picked up kind of an interesting side job and with to kind of gain some experience. Tell us where that was and, and what were you doing there? I remember it, but I want you to tell the story. What were you doing and where was that? Yeah, so after I graduated with my bachelor's, I, I did lots of interviews, and I actually had a job kind of lined up for the bank I was working for and going into their IT department. And then that bank got acquired by a larger bank and they out, they didn't outsource, but all of the IT got relocated to North Carolina and I was not willing to relocate. So then it was kind of like, oh no, what do I do? And started trying to go to interviews and everywhere I went, it was like, we we're looking for somebody with more experience. And so I was like, how am I going to get this? So how did you begin to learn sort of the website management? Obviously, you're probably referencing a point in time where it's not as easy to manage a website, you know, then as it is today, right? So there's, it's a little more, little more effort that goes into that. So how were you self-taught? Did you learn that in college? Did you, how'd you pick up on that? And when, if I remember correctly, it was on a Mac. Yeah, so it was a Mac, my first experience with a Mac, but it was all HTML code, which I had taken a course in HTML. And so I, I knew HTML code, but that is what it all is in. And then the Mac was the biggest experience. So I would go all day working at the bank on a Windows-based PC. And back then, it was almost like the Macs were kind of opposite from the Windows. So like your right, your mouse click for the left would be different. It would be right when you got to the Mac. So it would take me like 10 minutes to reorient myself to the Mac so that I could get the clicks right and, you know, type right and get the job done. Was there any other benefit to working at a radio station that I, I've never worked at one? I don't know anything about it. Is there, was it a fun place to be? Or was there, I mean, was it, Anything that for the listener, you're the first person, I think, on the show that's ever had a job at a radio station. So any other interesting bits to go along with that? No, because when I went in, it was it wasn't a radio station. It was uh, like the newspaper, the news station. They weren't a radio station. So sorry if I misrepresented ah, that. That's my fault. Yeah, yeah I thought you I, I had in my notes that it was a, I thought it was a local radio station website. So it was local news. Yeah. Ah, uh, Okay. So, well, let me ask, let me rephrase. So there's no like semi-famous local TV personalities then or, or news personalities that were in there or any other, it was just their web presence and that's all. Well, pretty much I did it at night. So they had already ran all their news and while the newspapers and everything were printing, 
I was loading it to the website. So I was kind of there in the dark by myself for the most part, other than those few people back in the warehouse printing the newspaper. Okay. So the, the logistics of this, now I'm more clear. So the, did they charge? Was there, was there like a paywall? Was that a thing yet? Probably not. Where the news was, you know, you sort of pay for the news or is this just all as it's shown, as, it, as it's printed would also appear on the site? No, you did have to have a subscription and it was based on your subscription for your newspaper. So if you were like, you got the newspaper every day and on the weekends, you automatically got the website news posted too that was digital. But if you didn't want the newspaper in print, you could pay to do digital and you know, different different plans. So you mentioned earlier also that you were at the bank, it was acquired, you talked about North Carolina, and then was your next move into IT, was that Radiology Center? Is that right? It was. Mm-hmm. So, yep, I landed a job at a radiology and diagnostic imaging center here in our region, and they were the largest radiology and diagnostic imaging center at the time. And our owner was very up on technology. It was actually one of his core missions. And he had one of the first MRI machines back then. People from Chicago and other areas, large cities were coming here for that MRI machine. It was the first in the area in the state, I believe, or not the state, but the United States. Interesting. So this must have been just horrifically expensive. If, and I wouldn't have picked, like if people from Chicago were coming down to use this platform, it must have been substantial. Where was it? Do you remember even where it was built or who's the manufacturer? It was a GE unit called a three Tesla at the time. So when you have a platform like that, a unit like that, is there anything from a technical perspective that you had to, I mean, obviously it's going to produce images. And you have to do something with those that interconnects with the rest of the network. Did you have to go get special training on this as well to sort of connect it to the rest of the network or was it siloed off? No. So it was just a different unit. We already had other medical imaging devices that all connected to the network and back to what's called a picture archiving communication system where all of those images go to and then the radiologist pulls those down. And it does require a lot of bandwidth and a lot of storage to store all of that. but. It was called Mobility Workless, so reconfiguring the radiology systems to communicate with that machine. And this goes back some years, but the same issues exist today. I mean, from a security standpoint, if you were responsible for a similar type of machine today, I mean, as I understand it, you cannot patch these systems in the same cycle necessarily. It's sometimes more difficult to protect them. What other types of considerations are you concerned about when you have a a new type of equipment like this that sort of arrives on your network? What are you looking at? What are you trying to do to understand it and protect it? If anything, what can you do? Yeah, so you want to know about it first off. So we use tools that don't allow those things to automatically connect so that we can know about them. And then we can provision them onto the network and to the network segment we want. So segmentation is a big thing. You only want them to be able to talk to the systems they need to be able to talk to. And we don't typically allow internet access out so that therefore if you can't get in out, you can't get in either unless you, it's a secured connection where, you know, maybe the vendor needs to get in and support something for the unit or do an update, like you said, and those would be controlled and secured. Yeah, that's another big one. So remote access, but yeah, a lot of these, I would figure they would be kind of in their own subnet, kind of walled off from the rest of the network simply because not only because of the data that they have, but also you're typically not able to install anything on these systems, right? They, they need to be sort of subnetted or firewalled off. We haven't had anyone on the show to sort of outline sort of the unique challenges of these types of systems. So I wanted to take a second to sort of ask and just for 
general knowledge of the listener that that's typically one of the more difficult things to secure, you know, ITOT kind of thing. Yeah, it is. For some of the reasons you mentioned that they can't be patched often. So a lot of times these devices are FDA regulated. And my understanding is sometimes it takes five years to get through those regulations. Well, we know in technology that those are obsolete by then. And I know they're doing a lot of work to work on that and make that better. So hopefully more to come there. But yeah, you definitely want to think about not being able to plug USB devices in and different things that could affect that computer and then propagate to your network. So segmentation is key and then blocking down when you can. The other piece of that is a lot of times these are vendor vendor computers that we can't put our policies on and our security controls in place. So we have to do other controls around it. So this is RDI and then you seem to have a career of acquisition or being acquired. RDI got acquired. Is that is, is my I messed up the whole paper printing radio station thing. Did I at least get that RDI was acquired? Yes, you got that. So RDI was acquired by the hospital and that led me into working for Owens for Health. So okay. So now we're sort of we're now with with the hospital. What did how did your career change in that that phase as getting acquired? Because it sounds like you were more operationally focused. You're responsible making sure that these systems are running and available. It's kind of like as these acquisitions happen, you know, your opportunities and sort of the footprint of what you're working on kind of grows. How is that last acquisition like? Because you already said you kind of love the owner of RDI. You, you know, technology is a pillar of their success. Now you're owned by your current employer, but how did things change there career-wise for you? Yeah, I did love working for him and he was on te- up on technology, so which was really cool because I love technology. And I got to dabble in a bit of all of the technology. So when I was over that, you know, you know, it was a smaller organization, but I was over everything from the badges that let you into the door to the phone systems, to the radiology systems, to the website, to the email and file shares and print servers. So I got to dabble in all of it and it was very fun. And with him being up on technology and liking technology, anytime a new technology came out, like the Razor flip phone or the BlackBerry, when he got one, Jackie got to get one too, so that she knew how to support him and use it. So that was really cool. And then Getting acquired by the hospital was a much larger, larger organization. And it also operated 24-7, which was new to me because I had always been had the ability to, we close, we can do these upgrades to now. It, it's more difficult. The ship doesn't shut down. Let's put a pin in the transition for just a second. Let's spend a, a moment on that. What does that mean for those leaders and future leaders listening? That is a massive change to what I'll call quality of life. Talk to us about, so when you had nights and weekends free to do the maintenance, which is hard enough, mind you, because you're already going to miss dinner or a weekend or a migration or whatever, which you've also led and managed. Now you've got a 24-7 operation. How is that different? How do you manage expectations differently? What, what did you learn there in that kind of move? Because that's a big one. Talk to us about that. It is. And I think for healthcare systems in general, it is still hard because you're never not treating patients or taking care of patients. Your doors are always open. Your systems need to always be up. So to find that balance of high availability in your systems and life balance, been on call 24-7, where 
I wasn't, like you said, I mean, unless there was a major upgrade or something, I had my nights and weekends to go to, you know, because you're a leader, you have staff around the clock and therefore you're on call 24 seven. If something goes wrong, you're getting called. If somebody's sick, you're getting called. So it was a big, a big culture change. Nothing I wouldn't change though, but, and a big change to change those patchings. You didn't have the luxury of we're going to do that upgrade on the weekend because now it's, you can't take the system down. How are you going to do the switch and get this upgrade? So it was a, it's more of a team effort and a very organized approach. Earlier in my career, before I got into InfoSec, I worked in web infrastructure, which was basically how to put web systems in front of a mainframe to do loan application systems. And it was both an amazing job and a terrible job. I learned a lot, grateful for the opportunity, but it was, you had support that would happen late at night, early in the morning, you'd have migrations that happened. One system I supported, I'll never forget this, the migrations were 11 p.m. and the other system was 5 a.m. And sometimes you had both, and so you just wouldn't go to bed. The migration would push early into the morning, testing would complete about 4 or 5 a.m., then you'd begin work on the second system at 5 a.m. And I never had the pressures that you're talking about for the availability for care in terms of a hospital. These were financial systems, so they could afford to be down a little bit. How did you manage that as a leader? Like your staff, how do you keep them from getting burned out? And you didn't have a 24-7 operation. You're just responsible 24-7, right? So how did you, how did you keep that? Was there a strategy to keep people fresh? Yeah, we rotated calls, obviously. So we kind of cross-trained and did a lot of knowledge-based articles so that even though you might be the subject matter expert of the radiology system or the lab system, we cross-trained and wrote enough documentation for each other that if something happened, you know, I could probably pull your notes or your old tickets that you've support tickets that you've done and your knowledge articles that you've written and find this is the issue. This is how I fix it so that that person's not the one always getting those calls so that you knew oh, every six weeks I'm going to be on call and that's my week. Other than that, I'm not on call. And, and I jumped right in and took call a lot of times with them because I wanted them to have an extra week off. And it also kept me fresh. I needed you as a manager or director earlier in my career. That's an approach that many do not take, especially spacing out. That's such a huge thing if you're on call. If you Every seven weeks versus every six weeks is huge. That's a big deal. That's a rarity. And so you were in a, in a management position at this point, too, to be clear? Correct. There's a whole thing. Norman Schwarzkopf, obviously kind of a, a well-known, famous general, had this whole thing. And, and now there's a book titled by it. But his whole thing was you eat last. So you stand in the same chow line, but you eat last. And to me, that's a very, from a leadership perspective, that's an eat last thing. Let the staff eat first, but then jump in. And as you know, he would help in the kitchen and that kind of thing. And, and also, you know, you're sort of showing that you're serving them. And I don't think we do enough of that. So credit to you for doing that. I think there's part of you too. It sounds like you're very enthusiastic. You probably wanted to, to tinker around a little bit on some of this stuff too, is what I can feel. I don't know you well enough, but I mean, that's not only wanting to help, but also supporting of the systems I think is enjoyable to you as well, from what I can tell. Is that true? I think you're right. That, that would be true. Yeah. And I'm a believer, like, I'm not going to ask you to do something if I wouldn't do it. So that's another reason I jumped in. But yes, part of it is too, that I do love to help. I love to coach and teach and, and I love to get down into the weeds and get into the techie stuff too. <laughs> I wish I could play this for some of my old managers. You know who you are. 
not asking your staff to do something that you wouldn't do or, or don't know how to do is also key. The counterpoint to that, though, is in my last role, we were large enough and had enough growth and what I'll call political stuff going on. And those that have listened to the show probably know what I'm going to say is we didn't allow console access. If you were a manager or director, you weren't allowed to be technical. Now, this is a pretty large organization. It's, it's harder to do this in medium-sized or smaller organizations. So that's kind of the, the counterpoint to the rule, I guess. But credit to you for that approach. That's the right way to do things, I believe. So you had another kind of inflection point. So you were at RDI, did a lot of stuff there. I remember you told me you did building out a new building. You, you moved IT in all ha- in, in-house. Now RDI gets acquired. You were just getting ready to tell us about how not only did you have this technical responsibility, but you were kind of the troubleshooting architect, tester, evaluator, testing center of new technology for, at least sounds like in part, for not only the company, but also for the executive. So you were getting sort of a duplicate of all the stuff that was coming in. What was that like? It sounds like you really enjoyed it. Tell us a little bit about that and how that then set up the rest of what you did there post-acquisition? Yeah. So after that, I moved into the hospital as a manager in in information technology. And I I will say, I didn't get that luxury of all the latest, greatest technology. Of course, that's because they are a 24-7 shop and they are much larger. So it is is a lot harder to get, you know, 5,000 employees, 6,000 now, that stuff instead of just, you know, 100. (laughs) So that was difficult. Um, I actually always tease them that um, I used to have to dumb down our network to talk to theirs when we joined the networks together. But now it's all up to par. (laughs) You said something there that some may have missed. And I think this is, there's a little bit of jousting in that statement, but it's not uncommon. So you have a larger company that might be more profitable and maybe more powerful, but it's not uncommon to have a smaller company that may be more advanced, that because their their size may have allowed them to innovate. They probably also had bad habits too. I've seen that. But sometimes the technology that they have inside and the standards and the protocols and the, the stack is more mature than the company that's actually acquiring them. So tell us a little bit about that and maybe tell us how do you handle that diplomatically? So for the person listening who's in that situation right now, And someone listening right now is in that situation where they're either acquiring or they're getting acquired. Talk to us about the emotions of that and tell us how you should manage that on both sides. Looking back on it, what's the more diplomatic way to sort of deal with this sort of standards? Who has the better network? Who's got the better domain? What email server should we use? This is common. M&A is hard. So coach us on that a little bit. Yeah, so you're exactly right. We did have the luxury of we were already, I mean, this was back in 2007, 2008. So we were already on IP telephony and VoIP and we were already on fiber through because we did get the luxury of building a new building. So it was already fiber through the building and, you know, we already had gigabit switches. And so going into an organization that had been around for hundreds of years, their, their building was not new. Therefore they had old cat fives, you know, ran through the building still and. They didn't have gigabit switches because it is hard to take down 24-7 hospital operations. And it was funny on one point because we would tease and say we were going backwards in time. But then on the other hand, 
I understood. I, I learned to understand that they were 24 seven shop and they're there for the patient. It wasn't about, you know, the best technology where I had come from, but I also got to help grow and grow that organization. So me and my staff, we were kind of leveraged because we had done that and knew that. So we were leveraged to get the hospital up to par in that aspect. I'm sure for those that were working at the hospital before they had the extra help, I mean, in many cases, funding for IT, IT security comes maybe last, right? Patient care is first. And I'm sure there's many folks at hospitals that I know that, you know, work their rear end off to make sure that they can do the most possible with, with very li- little on the IT side. And I, I have empathy for that. But I'm sure that when the merger happened, despite all the maybe the politics, that it was probably welcome that they had extra IT help. You mentioned that being leveraged. And it had to feel good to have people that are like, hey, tell us more how you did this. I mean, that had to have been a shot of adrenaline, I would think, for you as an inflection point of your career. Was that true or am I sort of making something up? No, I would say that was true. And, and yeah, it did feel nice. And I had back then, I've let it expire, but I had my MCSE already. And so they were like asking me, how do you help us with Active Directory and, you know, exchange and those types of things? Because I had done that at much smaller scale, but I had the expertise and the certification and I've, I had actually done it just at a smaller scale. So they used me and my team and one of my guys was Cisco certified on the IP telephony phone. So they were very appreciative to have those resources and also educate them. And like I said, write some knowledge-based articles up to them and educate them and coach them. You told me that, I think this is the round point in time I was asking another, how did your career change? You were saying that you took on a bigger role with the voice network, with VoIP. That was kind of a thing that one of the first things that needed to be brought up to snuff. Was I tracking that correctly? And tell me about that sort of that chapter of your career post-acquisition. What were you doing around VoIP? Why was that important? And what did that allow you to do career-wise? I don't know career-wise if it really changed anything, but yeah, just because we had done it and had the expertise, we were leveraged to bring that up through the hospital because they were still, you know, on old school analog line. But I think that that had to have been, that had to have been a hell of a big project. I mean, that's not something you do over a weekend, is it? Oh, no, it was a, a long process at least a year and we didn't do it alone. So we, we helped and helped guide them. But I mean, we couldn't bring up a whole hospital of, I don't even remember how many beds we were at the time, but not counting clinics and, you know, all the providers offices. So we did have a consulting company come in and help as well. I always find that these projects though, you know, especially looking forward into your careers is being a privacy officer and a CISO that the more you know how to deploy and build and sometimes break things makes you that much better of a defender. And I think that the best security people are the ones that started their career having to build and deploy and and sometimes accidentally break things. So I always love, uh, you know, you're talking about these big, larger projects. I always feel like that's, and, and even project management skills. Running a security team, you've got to be, you'd better be excellent at being a good PM because it's often very expensive stuff. It's sometimes multi-month, multi-year, depending on where you are. And so it seems like that was a great foundation for your future as well, just in terms of having to run projects and having to get along with people and having to have that mix. Do you think project management combined with technical skill? I mean, 
what advice would you have to anyone who's listening? Do you think that somebody as an example should volunteer to be a PM to learn that? Do you think that's an ingredient to being a good CISO? Do you think it's time well spent? I do not have a project management certification. I wish I did. And so, yes, I do think that is a great combination because like you said, there's so many projects and managing of documentation and that that would be a great asset. I lean on our project managers often. Right. I'll tell you the, so I did take the PMP, the PMI certification, the PMP, and that test is a real pain in the rear. I'm glad I did it. I worked in a PMO for a period of time. And I think it's time well spent, but I don't know that you need the cert to be a good project leader. And I think that the bigger thing, I've had a lot of people who I worked with who was wanted to spend a million dollars on some kind of piece of tech and couldn't describe in human plain language what was the problem they're trying to solve, right? And that's one of the things you do in project management, right? You have the, what's the project's product and being able to articulate that plainly it helps with justification with finance. It helps with explaining it to leadership. And so, yeah, that, that to me, having that experience is really, really valuable. I can't stress that enough. So I want to jump forward. You were describing to me the times that you had interaction with the FBI. And you talked about in, I think, 2012, and something happened. The privacy officer came to you, and there was not a security officer. And you had a problem you had to solve. And I think this might have been an accelerant into your current position. Talk to us about that and what you learn, this host of new opportunities. What did you learn? Privacy officers talking to you, the FBI's there. What is Jackie doing? Yeah, so at the time, I was still just a manager in information technology, all just technology-focused, not really security-focused-minded or cybersecurity-focused-minded. And our privacy officer... So it was 2012, like you said, the FBI showed up at our doorstep and they said, hey, you have an employee here that they had tracked down to this specific computer and they're still in people's identity. So our privacy officer at the time was the one, we didn't have a security officer, even though it was a HIPAA requirement, which I didn't know that at the time. She came to me and she was like, okay, they're here. We need somebody to understand, pardon my language, what the hell they're talking about. And that we can trust because this is highly confidential. And so I was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> that led me into the security world. And I started learning all about security and digging into audit trails and helping with this investigation, trying to figure out how many people's identity were stolen from this employee and how she was doing it. And it was just so intriguing to me that that's just like, oh my gosh, I love this. And that's what led me into the security world. You seem even more enthusiastic about this than describing how much you loved Oregon Trail, which was pretty high up there. No, I think that this is, you spell it out. It's like solving a puzzle in a way, right? You don't know how this happened. You're trying to piece it together. You might not have all the tools you need. You might have to write the tool or write the query, or you might not have the place to even the, the digital workspace in order to figure all this out. And then you got a bunch of other people who you may not even know who are now calling you up and, hey, Jackie, what is this? How big is this? How did it happen? Right. And so you get, did you feel like you had a, a rush of attention that was beyond probably what you had before? Like you're kind of popular at this point. Yeah, I did. And we had so many 
disparate systems back at the time. So we didn't have one unified electronic health record like we do today. We had multiple and just trying to piece all that together from, so this person was a back-end billing office person and how figuring out, you know, of course she had a lot of access. She had to, to collect bills and trying to figure out what she was doing and what her routine was and getting to work with the FBI on that. And so you get to add in the forensics to that and of the hard drives of her computer and the website she visited and audit trails of all the systems together and just trying to pull all that together. It was a lot, but a lot of fun that I would never look back on. There's a lot of long nights. <laughs> right. I absolutely love this. I mean, this is, you mentioned working with the FBI. I often talk about these types of events. You're answering 100-year-old police investigative questions, truthfully. It's who was involved. What identities did they use? What happened before, during, and after the problem? Was this person's behavior normal or abnormal? What did they affect? What did they view? What did they change? All of this is incredibly important. So out of all of this, you were excited to do it. It was intriguing. I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. This was 20 years ago. What did you learn out of that? If looking back, finish the sentence for me, like out of all of that, I learned what about myself? About myself, I would say that I can't quit. I would stay up all night like, oh, what about this? And try to go get that audit trail and see if I could piece the timelines in together or go pull those website logs and see if I could figure it out. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't want to stop. So I guess I have a, a drive to just keep going. <laughs> a bit of tenacity as it relates to wanting to complete what this was, right? It's sort of a task, right? And you're, you, you want to make sure it's at a hundred percent completion. I like that. Yeah. I, I wanted to make sure we captured every patient's identity that was stolen so that they could be aware and start fixing it. And I wanted to do it as quick as I could so that it wasn't continually continually affecting that patient. Yeah. To minimize damage and to protect them, which is a core element of mission. Now, you weren't yet InfoSec, but you're kind of doing incident response work. You're becoming an InfoSec person, right, in this, um, in the middle of a breach. When at this point in time or after, when do you kind of become the security person? Is it during this moment or is it afterward? Like, when do you start to identify yourself as a security person rather than an IT person? So in 2013, I moved over and I was kind of like the senior security analyst. We still didn't have a privacy officer at the time. So that's when I went over into the security world. Because from that investigation with the FBI, we did have some outcomes, some kind of corrective action type plans per se. And so I kind of headed those up. And some of those were that we had to audit patients you know, access to patients' charts and the different types of things. So once we figured out what this employee was doing, we had to set alerts that if somebody else, you know, pull, I'll just tell you, so photo IDs, because obviously you have that in the healthcare system, you need to know who it is. So anybody that had opened up a, a driver's license or a photo ID, like those would trigger alerts. And so we start, I started building those queries out and those alerting systems out. Which if you haven't done that, that's incredible fun to start building, to be a part of, to have a little bit of cooperation, to start spending time and money on that is some of the best years of my life as a security analyst with doing things just like that and being one of the first to do it is incredible fun. 
It is. And it's very rewarding to, to say, yes, I, you know, I made this query and I figured out how to pull this, you know, so we can be more proactive. Right, right. Look at this. Look at this thing I found. It's like here in Indiana, people go mushroom hunting and not the psychedelic kind, just the kind of eat. It's a big deal. And and it's sort of like, look what I found. Like, look what I discovered. You know, it's a, it's a great thing. It's sort of digital mushroom hunting. But we're not done. We're not done with the FBI. In 2015, they, see if I can do the sound effect, they knock on your door again. So 2013, you're the senior security analyst. The FBI, they miss you. They come back. What had happened then? A little bit different story this time. A little bit different story, yeah. So we acquired a, a, another hospital in Kentucky. And it was kind of a fast, this hospital is kind of going bankrupt. We are, we're going to acquire them. Afterthought was security was an afterthought. IT was an afterthought. And we didn't have, we, the paper, the ink wasn't written on the paper for just a few months. And the FBI showed up and said, hey, all your data has been exfiltrated out. So we had a large breach where we had a keylogger that was on their network and exfiltrating out the data. So you bought a breach. You got a breach from a subsidiary or an acquisition. I've been there. It's no fun. That's a different kind of, so I assume that somebody bad on the outside installed a keylogger in order to gain additional access to steal credentials is my guess. Is it something like that? Or was it an insider that intentionally put a keylogger on there? No, it was a malicious outsider. Okay. So we've got a bad person who wants to do bad things on the outside. How is this different from the last time? Because now you're the senior security person. You're an analyst. This has to feel different. How does this feel? How does it feel this time? Well, fortunately, we had not connected them to our network yet. So it was, a, it was isolated to just that hospital because it was only a few months that the ink had, you know, I don't even know it fully dried yet. But it, again, it was learning. They had total different systems than us. So trying to figure out the audit trails for systems are always different and fun. So different EHR, different packs, different everything. So trying to figure out, and this was even on some HR systems, computers. So had to find out their employee system that they had. So trying to figure out all of their software and the, how to get to the audit trails of those software and the data, just to mine the data to know whose data was affected. But I love that stuff. So my master's is in informatics. So I love data mining and pulling information together. So maybe this was a little bit like a repeat of what you had. I mean, similar themes, right? Similar you know, and it might have been kind of nice that it wasn't connected yet because you could just sort of airdrop in. And I assume you had to go visit this hospital and you're probably spending time, a lot of late nights there, I'm assuming. Or did you do it all remote? No, I went, did many trips there, but I did do a lot remote too. And we ended up pulling in our cyber insurance company. So we had help there and they had appointed us, you know, some forensic investigators and worked with them. So... You said something to me, and I actually wrote it down. I put it in quotes, which I think it's very, I think it's a high level of humility, but it's also kind of funny too. It could maybe go on a t-shirt or something or a bumper sticker. Oh, Lord, I'm scared. You said, yeah, you said, I'm not the best person, but I'm who they had. And I, I kind of smile when I read that, but you've gone through two of these fairly large or what I'll call least significant breaches, and you're still pretty relatively new 
not in technology, but in security, right? In a, I don't know, in a four-year window, three-year window, something like that. So you said this sort of sets the stage now in 2016, 2017, where you have sort of, you said money and momentum. So tell me about money and momentum. How do you align with that? What are your lessons there? To those that are listening who maybe just now have money and momentum, but aren't sure what to do, take us to that point. If you got money and momentum, how do you behave? What do you do, Jackie? Yeah, so, and that money and that momentum came from, you know, OCR came in and investigated. We were on the wall of shame. So that's where that money and momentum came from. And we started with the basics, you know, find your assets, know what you have. We started out encryption because we hadn't done encryption yet. So we got encryption in place and started building out a security team, building out a governance committee that we would take our risks to. And here's where we are and helping us prioritize along with the mission and the organization overall mission and strategic roadmap. Yeah, you mentioned that there's compliance steering committee. You even talked about, you know, just introducing pen testing and awareness and the importance of that. What's awareness like in general? That's a big job. What are you guys doing for that? And what's your opinion on what works for awareness and what doesn't work with awareness? Not intended to be a trick question, but I think there's, I think I have strong opinions on it, but I'd like to know yours related to what works and what doesn't. What I've seen in our organization is it's both. It's two-faced. You don't want to be punitive. But there's times that you're going to have to be punitive. So if somebody's not getting the picture and they're continuing to be those clickers on your fish simulations, you know, at first we try not to, you know, because we talked to the staff and they didn't, it's embarrassing. So they didn't want their leaders and everybody to know that they clicked on a link. So we don't tell their leaders at the first time until they're a multi-repeat clicker. That's, I think, the second time they fail is when their leader gets pulled in and they're required to do some additional education. We started out initially that if you've clicked, you get education. Then we found that it's just a lot on people. They're already embarrassed. They think they've learned their lesson. So we took that away and said they just get a little pop-up message, kind of a little education, but it's just a little pop-up message. It says, this was one of our simulations. You know, I don't remember, but you could have basically taken our whole network down, but not that harsh. And then we try to do more awards. So if your whole department use everybody that got a simulation for that month, they use our fish alert button then your department's going to get a peeps party. So we're trying to do more incentive, like positive spin on it. But obviously, if, if you're a multi-failure, then you are a risk to our organization and you're not following policies. And therefore, you know, disciplinary action is going to happen. You are a first that I'm aware of anywhere in terms of the pizza party. I don't know that I've ever heard of that. And I think that's fantastic. I think that goes more in line with as a test of the culture of the company, certainly uh, the culture of the security program. I know some programs that are very, very punitive. And I don't believe, even with my combustible temperament that I can have or used to have in life, I don't think being punitive in a security program is the right way to go. So I like, in fact, love hearing the pizza party thing. I wholeheartedly agree with you. We all make mistakes. I could click on one. Not only do we all make mistakes as humans, but these malicious actors, they're getting smart and savvy and they're coming up with some pretty crafty stuff. So I don't think it should be punitive. So let me go back. I'll ask the question. So in 2020, you got pulled into another acquisition, but I think the difference there is you were involved early. So it wasn't maybe as much of an afterthought, maybe. 
How has that been different? Is there anything else you've learned being involved early? Absolutely. It was a much better M&A acquisition type thing. We were pulled in kind of at the very beginning and we got to do our due diligence, you know, review their security risk assessments if they had had any, their policies, those type things. And we also got to put a device on their network to see if there was any malicious activity already on their network. So much better process. That is something for those listening. I'm a big advocate of that. There's a big debate over what to put on and I won't get down that path, but I think having something at minimum that looks at egress traffic, ideally looking for lateral movement, but at minimum looking at egress from that environment to do an assessment is so important. I love hearing the fact that you were able to do that. They may not like it, but I think that's necessary for due diligence. I really do. And so it was your, it was something that you had. We don't need to name vendor. We don't talk about vendors here necessarily. But it was something that, that was your technology that then you could look at from your network, is, to, to be clear. Was that accurate? Well, we went and put a device on their network. We didn't connect it to our network. But yes, it was a product we had. And therefore, it collected data and then we could evaluate the data. And also, I can add, it was a huge benefit because prior, you know, you get a list of assets from folks. So when you're watching and, and collecting all this egress network traffic like you're talking about, you get a pretty good picture of the assets that are communicating to each other as well. Well, and I was going to say, maybe you were heading this way, but there's probably a difference. It's not uncommon to find new assets that they don't even know they have. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm actually really glad to hear that that's the process. I would highly recommend that to anyone listening to try to replicate that. Sometimes politics doesn't allow for it, but being able to put a device in there that you own and manage that allows you to then maybe it's, you know, maybe it doesn't need connection back to your network, but is sort of connected via the cloud that you can view via dashboard. Super important. I'm glad to hear that it's gone better. Great shows fly by and we're at time and it doesn't even feel like it, Jackie. No, it doesn't. It does not. But there's a question that any listener knows exactly what I'm about to ask. And it's this pursuant to the name of the show. The new CISO. Jackie, what does being a new CISO mean to you? I love it. And I think being a CISO in the healthcare field is very rewarding because ultimately it's about the patient and how to protect the patient's data and anymore it's patient safety and lives. I mean, we've seen that from some of the incidents that have happened recently. So I just think it's very rewarding being a CISO protecting patient's data and their family's data. And a CISO that became one out of necessity, that's a little bit of a road less traveled, that you sort of accidentally became one in a way, right? Out of necessity of breach, which is fantastic. I, I think that's a fantastic direction. Jackie, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for sharing all that you know. All right. Thanks for having me. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.